invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. It must seem like we've been in this portion of Scripture for a very, very long time. Well, we have. Uh, This feral discourse, our Lord um, speaks to his disciples, uh, is three chapters. And it's three chapters of some of the most intense instruction to be found anywhere in the Gospels. It's words that are spoken upon the backdrop of Jesus being betrayed by Judas, having the reality that his hour had come, his death upon the cross by which he would glorify God would be soon, this very night he would be betrayed into the hands of men, he would be accused of crimes that were against the state and ultimately he would be let out for execution as a, as a common criminal. It is upon the reality of these things that the disciples of Jesus are distressed. Their hearts are troubled. Jesus has said he is leaving and where he is going they cannot follow. And so Jesus seeks to cheer their despondent hearts particularly in chapter 14, by giving some deeply significant promises of the fact that God's presence will be theirs as he goes to the Father's house of many mansions and his presence of God in his temple would be manifested and realized that he would come again and that where he is they would be also, that he would give them the spirit, he would answer their prayers. Many, many lines of clear and concrete encouragement to a discouraged group of people. And then in chapter 15, the theme sort of alters slightly. Though Jesus still mentions promises and provisions of God and God's Son, the emphasis comes to their responsibilities the responsibilities of the disciples as well. They need to abide in Him. They need to love one another as He has loved them. But now with the 18th verse of chapter 15, the tone changes even further. As the emphasis moves, not only from the promises of chapter 14 to the responsibilities of chapter 15, but now the responsibilities of the disciples of Jesus in the midst of not only the bright light of reality of the loving provisions of their Heavenly Father, the loving promises of the Son of God, the loving presence of the Holy Spirit that is given to them, to the very real, dark, and dangerous hatred of the world. Jesus has told them in verse 16, He's chosen them, He's appointed them, that they should go and bear fruit. But this going is not a sounding of a retreat to go back into a shell of personal protection and preservation of our own lives and needs, but rather it's a call to go into the world. To be Jesus' representatives, his ambassadors, his emissaries, to preach the gospel to the nations. In the post-resurrection appearance of chapter 20, in verse 21, he says to them, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now we think of that, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We might think 
that that's a really great job to have to be sent by Jesus as Jesus himself has been sent that seems exciting adventurous glamorous the simple fact is Jesus wants his followers to know it's very dangerous it should be quite intimidating to consider the kind of world you're going into the kind of reception you're likely to receive Jesus is sending them into the world that will finally will, will make their final statement about their view of Jesus as through the persons of their leaders the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the Roman authorities they will tell what they think of Jesus by condemning him to a criminal's death executing him upon a Roman cross John has told us this at the beginning of the gospel when he says he was in the world the world was made by him and the world did not know him he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him what a contrast between what our Lord has just said when he's spoken about the father having loved me and I've loved you and now you to love one another he's told these men you comprise a communion of love with the triune God a communion of love where the father loves you and the son loves you and you're to love one another and now they're to be sent out into a world of hatred and bitterness of harshness of people who are only concerned about themselves people who have no fear of God no fear of God in this place is what Abraham said when he came amongst the Amalekites no fear of God in this place people who know not the ethic of loving your neighbor as you love yourself much less loving your neighbor as Christ has loved us and it's this reality that they're going out into the world that Jesus begins to address them in the words of verse 18 and really it goes all the way through to chapter 16 to the end of verse 4 now we're only going to look at the chapter 15 portion we'll take up 16 God willing next week but I want to read this portion I'll read it in its entirety to get the flavor of what the disciples are up against and what Jesus is telling them and how Jesus instructs them and the comforts Jesus gives them in the midst of these harsh realities and yet the realities nonetheless he says if the world hates you and I've often told you that these um, phrases that are conditional using the word if can also be translated as since since the world hates you or if you translate it if the world hates you you should probably put in parentheses and it certainly does it certainly will if the world hates you and it certainly will know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will keep yours also but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me if I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin but now they have no excuse for their sin 
Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the world, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me graciously. I mean, really, that's the word. They hated me freely. We're told we're justified freely by His grace. Same word here. Freely. They freely hated me. It wasn't a cause. It's like we're not justified because of a cause in us. So, Jesus was hated. There was no cause for hatred in Him. He hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This morning I want to look at this portion of the Word of God by first focusing our thoughts upon just simply the reality of the world's hatred. The reality of the world's hatred. And then we want to look at what causes the world's hatred. Again, there was no cause of Jesus being hated. He should have been loved, universally acclaimed. And yet, uh, there are causes that the world is bent upon its hatred. Not in Jesus, but in the reality of their own sinful hearts and their own sinful natures. We want to look at what causes the world's hatred. And then, finally, the help that's offered amid the world's hatred. We're not just left with a hateful world. We're not just left with the despairing thought, well, the world hates us, they're out to get us, and then let's just run away, or let's just endure it manfully and just put it, be put to death, or shut our mouths, or whatever else we might think we might do, either to cope with the reality of the world's hatred. There's a counter principle in the world in the face of human hatred. So first of all, let's look at the reality of the world's hatred. Jesus is sending these disciples out into the world that he himself has experienced as hostile. He himself has experienced it as hateful. Well, there was no cause of hostility in him, no cause of hatred in him. He quotes the Psalms as one who was hated without a cause. There's no good reason. He should have been loved. He came amongst men as one who does, is, is doing good. Uh, he healed the sick. He grieved with the grieving. He raised their dead. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lepers to be cleansed. He showed compassion to the masses. He taught and instructed for their good. He received sinners and he ate with them. He fed the hungry. He gave hope to all who believed in him. They hated him. They hated him. In the face of incarnate love, nothing but wrath and bitterness and hatred rose in the hearts of these, his enemies. Now that's not to say there aren't people that behaved differently or decently or perhaps didn't get caught up in the anti-Jesus mania. And usually it just takes a small proportion of people to cause uh, an uproar, a riot, a group of people to cry out even though they don't even know why, crucify him, crucify him. You know, most of the people are either for things in a very 
a concentrated way that constitutes maybe 20% of the people, 20% are vigorously and, 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 and um, uh, intensely opposed to something, and the other people are just in the middle, they don't care, they'll just follow whatever uh, goes along. And there are people like that. There are people even in leadership of... Uh, Civil authorities. You read about the civil authorities. Well, you had in the book of Acts in chapter 18, the gospel coming to Corinth. Now, previously, when Paul was in Macedonia and preaching in Philippi and Thessalonica, the civil authorities joined the synagogue in opposing him, putting him in prison. He had to flee from those places. And they tried to do a similar thing in um, Corinth, but there was a problem. They had a guy in charge, his name was Gallio. And Gallio couldn't care less about any of it. <laughs> Says he cared for none of these things. He said, these are matters of your own law, Jews. You, you, uh, get out of here. I have no, no concern at all to adjudicate this matter at all. And so he just left them alone. And so Paul remained 18 months in the city of Corinth, preaching without being molested. The civil authorities did not come against him there. And there are people like Gallio that will simply do that. They will simply say, hands off. I may not like them, may not love them, may not want them in my city, but hey, they're here. I'll tolerate them. Let them do what they want. Just we allow other people to do what they want. And they just have an indifference to it. So again, it's not saying that uh, everyone in the world hates with the intensity that everybody else in the world hates with. Not to say that. Not to say there aren't levels of extremity, of extreme hatred um, that's much greater than others. There are such things as wise and capable rulers who would have favorable thoughts about Christians in their world, in their, in their city, maybe because they pay their taxes, or maybe because they have, uh, they're hard workers. You know, they, they may have lots of reasons to show favor to the people of God. That's a principle that's in the book of Proverbs. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so there are such things as people being at peace with the people of God, even if they are not Christians. So not everybody hates with the same measure of intensity. But you know, hatred also means not just that there's an intense, sneering, malicious disregard and detestation of people. That's what we often think when we think of hatred. But a lot of times hatred just says, I couldn't care less about you. I don't care about whether you're here or gone. I don't care about you at all. It's just a, an indifference. Hatred can be complete indifference. It can be hatred when the priest and the Levite goes past the man taken among thieves. And he's there lying in his blood and he's wounded and needs help. And they just say, couldn't care less. And they just pass by the way. Now, I used to think that maybe the people were just concerned, those people were concerned about their religious purity and cleanliness. They were priests, they were Levites. And they wouldn't be able to officiate in the temple. But it's interesting what Jesus does in that parable of the Good Samaritan. He makes the priests and the Levites going away from Jerusalem toward Jericho. That's what they're doing. They're not on the way to Jerusalem to officiate in the temple. Then they might say, okay, they had a reason not to care for the man because they would have been ceremonial and clean. But Jesus doesn't give them, even give them that out. He makes them coming from Jerusalem on the road away from Jerusalem to Jericho. They had no reason to not care except they were people of hate. They don't care. There's no compassion. There's no human kindness in their heart when need is there. And that's every bit as much hatred, indifference to need that's there. The bent of the human heart 
the bent of fallen humanity is to pursue their own interests and not the interests of Christ and his kingdom or his father or the interests of love and the reality of a sinful, self-absorbed, self-centered world puts the Christians who live quite differently, who proclaim a message quite differently, different than the bent of this fallen world, puts us on a collision course with the world. We have values, we have ethical concerns, we have a standard of righteousness, we have a character that we seek to cultivate in our own lives that puts us at odds with the character, the ethics, the righteousness of a fallen world. We live in a world that's unrighteous, that's unprincipled, that's spent upon self-interests. And you know, the reality is when God's people come amongst the unrighteous, the unrighteous feel reproved. They feel convicted. They feel guilty. And you just know when you're in the midst of a group of unconverted people and their language is filled with invective and filled with profanity and curses. And when they find out you're a Christian, they'll say, oh, excuse me, excuse me, shouldn't have spoken that way. Excuse me. Why? They know they're wrong. They know they shouldn't be speaking that way. And they feel convicted in the presence of God's people whose speech is quite different. It's the principle that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. Jesus says that's the judgment that's come into the world. Christ has come into the world. And he sends his people into the world. And as they hated me, Jesus says, they will hate you. Well, if the world hates you, and you can assume that it will, know it's hated me before it hated you. You're not of the world. Your character is different. Your standards of right and wrong are different. Your values are different. Your message is conflicted, conflicting with the world and its sin. I've chosen you out of the world. The servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You will be persecuted, he says, on account of me, on account of my name. What causes this? Well, again, it's sort of hinted. It's just the reality that humanity and sin gets exposed by the light. It gets exposed by the reality of God's truth when it's proclaimed in the world. That's why you find people that just won't darken the doorway of a church. It's not that people are going to throw stones at them. It's not that people are going to sneer at them. It's not people, oh, he's an unbeliever. Let's make him feel uncomfortable. God's people are more than desirous of making people feel uncomfortable. But the people of the world are not at all at home amongst the people of God. Why? Because their sins are reproved. And they're not happy in the presence of the Word of God. Again, their sins are reproved. The world hates their sins to be exposed. They hate the character of God. They hate the word of God. They hate the people of God. They hate those who proclaim the word of God. Persecution goes with the territory of being Christians. And while persecution is not always bloody persecution, it's not always persecution unto death, it's not always imprisonment or bodily harm, every Christian will receive some degree of hatred that the world will heap upon them for the sake of the gospel. 
And the more of your Christian character, the more of Christian righteousness your life displays, the more of the truth of the gospel that your words might convey, the more the hate will be heaped on you. It's an interesting thing. When the preachers preached the word of God, two things happened. The church grew and persecution grew. Both those things went hand in hand. The church grew and persecution grew. The church grew because you had idol makers or people that brought idols. They stopped buying them. And the people who manufactured idols were concerned, our business is in jeopardy. They're taking away our business. They're saying that Diana, the great goddess of the Ephesians, is no god at all. We've got to do something about it. And so they raise up a, a ruckus in Ephesus. I heard of revivals in places where the bartenders were realizing our businesses are being hurt by the fact that people were being converted and becoming sober and no longer spending a lot of time and money in their bars becoming very agitated and very opposed to the progress of the gospel. You know, God's word comes and saves people, the citadels of sin and the strongholds of sin will be torn down and those that have vested interest in those citadels of sin are not going to be happy about it. And they're going to raise persecution against the people of God. They hate the character of God's people. They hate the message of God's people. They hate the results of what conversion brings in the lives of God's people. And so the more that Christian character, the more that Christian truths and realities are being displayed and manifested and expressed in the life of the believer, you not only find greater usefulness, but also greater hostility. Those things go hand in hand. But I want to point out something essential. I want you to note the direction of this hatred. Jesus says, if the world hates you. There's never a scenario found in Scripture if you hate the world. Now there is a sense in which the world is defined in Scripture that we are entitled to hate it. And that's why we think of the world as the compilation of evil. It's this reality that we live in a fallen world. A world that's estranged from God. A world that's separated from God. A world that's bent upon sin. And so when Scripture tells us to love not the world, nor the things of the world, it's talking about that. It's talking about that concept of the world in its rebellion against God as the totality of evil. But it never tells us to hate evil people. Go on a warfare against evil people. Be feel, feel threatened by evil people. Our Lord Jesus was the friend of sinners. He took a lot of flack from the religious people of the world because he was the friend of sinners. This man receives sinners. He eats with them. Jesus spoke the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son all to express the reality that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God that once sinner that repents the 99 that, that don't, the 99 sheep that, that are, 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 have never been lost over that one sheep that's found over that one coin that's found over that one son 
that returns. And that's to be our own understanding of how we live in this world. A person's not a Christian, and is a person who's evil. He's also another thing, he's a potential Christian. <laughs> Were you part of the world once? Didn't you follow after the things of the world and love the world and pursued the things of the world? You didn't even know it. At least I never know it. And I was a potential Christian. <laughs> never saw myself that way. I'm a potential Christian? I didn't think so. I thought that's the last thing in the world I'd ever become as a Christian. Never mind a Christian preacher. Not mind someone who taught others the Word of God. That wasn't in my sense of my life calling it all. And yet it was God's plan and God's purpose. And again, I've often told you, there are Christian people that love me enough to bear with me, even in all of my unloveliness, even when I serve the world and live for the world. I never had a single Christian say, now that you're, you're part of the world, I'm coming out after you. I'm going to... The only thing they ever came after me with was their love and their interest and their desire to see me saved. Our hearts are to be free from bitterness and anger and hostility that the world bears to us. We're not to reciprocate in kind. Again, we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, even our enemies. And more than that, it's not just self-love. It's the love with which we've been loved. It's the love that Christ has displayed to us. You know, love one another as I have loved you. We don't extend the power and the influence of the gospel by taking the world's practices and making them our own. There's enough preachers who preach with bitterness and hatred. And wish to see the eradication of the people of the world that they don't like. But the simple thing is they don't know what spirit they're of. When John, one of the sons of thunder, remember John and James, the sons of thunder, said, Lord, should we do an Elijah on these people? Should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? That'd be an interesting trick. I mean, it's Old Testament. Let's do it. Jesus' response is, you just don't know what spirit you're of. You don't know what spirit you're of. That's not the Holy Spirit that's propping you to want to see the destruction of the people of the world. That spirit has another thing in heart. That's a conversion of the people of the world. Jesus is going to say when he's come, he's come to convict the world. The world. Wicked, unbelieving, hateful, self-absorbed, self-interested, people that don't know God, that don't honor God, that don't love God. That spirit is going to come into the world to put that world on trial and and, and prosecute the case of the gospel with them to the place well, they'll be convicted and they'll be convicted that they'll come to faith. We read in Romans chapter 12 last week, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Leave the hatred to the world. Understand that's just the world being the world. And the world does not need angry Christians but loving Christians, Christ-like Christians, seeking their good, 
seeking their reclamation, seeking their rescue from sin through the gospel. But then there is that final word from Jesus that provides help to a people beset by the hostility of a fallen world. This help at hand, disciples. Yes, I'm sending you into the world. And the world's going to hate you. The world's going to be exposed by the reality of their sin when they see your lives and they hear your words. Even as they've been convicted of me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they'd have no excuse for their uh, they, they would not be guilty, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus has come and Jesus has spoken. They've heard his words. They've hardened their hearts. They know they're guilty. And they know that they're under condemnation. You're going to go into the world and people under condemnation are going to want to condemn you. They're going to want to put you out of the world. They're going to want to snuff out the light that is in you. They're going to use government authority to do it. They're going to do all in their power to wage war against you as the people of God. What are you going to do? Run and hide? Well, no. Jesus says... But when the Helper comes. But when the Helper comes. Verse 26. When the Helper comes, who I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Now to who who is 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 He going to bear witness to? Well, perhaps to them, to an extent, to where they didn't understand Jesus as they should. I mean, the Spirit's going to teach them more. We're going to read about that in chapter 16. But I think this matter, the bearing witness about Jesus, is the witness that the world needs. It's the witness I'm sending you to do. You will be my, my witnesses. I will send you out in the world to bear witness of my gospel. And you don't go alone. You don't go in the power of your own ability to persuade. You go vested with the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait until the power of God comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Folks, we have a helper. We have a paraclete. We have a comforter. We have a counselor. We have an advocate. He's all those things. He's with us. He's amid the world in which we labor. In all of our struggles, in all of our efforts to seek to be faithful to the gospel witness in a fallen world, it's the Holy Spirit who sustains all of Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit who sustains all of Christian ministry. It's the Holy Spirit who sustains all of Christian endeavor. He will bear witness of me. Now this witness that he bears will be through you. Through your words. As persecuted saints cast off into prison like Paul was. He and Barnabas are singing God's praises in song at midnight when God does this miracle and brings an earthquake to that prison. And the doors of the prisons were open. The prison cells were open. The people could have run. The jailer thought they had. He's about to take his own life. But lo and behold, these people that heard Paul and Barnabas' witness, something happened to them. 
I might think it was a wonderful thing. An earthquake happened. That's a great miracle. God brought an earthquake. But God did another kind of miracle in that those prisoners didn't flee when they could have. And they were prisoners. And yet those prisoners heard the gospel. They heard the witness of Paul. And they were not about to abandon this man who came with the word of God. He came with a message that convicted them. The Spirit worked in them. These people were likely converted. In that prison, God is a thing about saving people in prison. Now, I know there's jailhouse conversions and all about that, but it's also true that God does work in the hearts of people when their lives are at an end. Uh, you know, how many people say, I've done such a thing, my life is over? And they go into prison and they find Jesus. They realize their life has really just begun. God has met them at a time when their lives were at the lowest. I'm not saying they should be let out of prison. No, they need to pay their debt to the law that they broke and the wicked things that they've done. But nonetheless, God has an ability to rest the hearts of people. The Spirit's been given to that end, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come through the songs of Christians, through the worship of Christians, through the witness of Christians, through the joy of Christians, through the consistency of Christian character and Christian life being expressed in the lives of believers. He will bear witness of me. You will also bear witness. It's not a separate witness. The Spirit does a witness in here and the people do the witness. No, the Spirit works through the people. The Spirit gives us the ability to articulate the proper words and the proper attitudes that show forth grace and compassion and love even to our persecutors. The Spirit opens hearts. And the Spirit changes hearts. And the Spirit renews people unto newness of life in the Lord Jesus. Now anybody could speak the gospel bitterly. (laughs) Get up on the wrong side of the bed. Go out and, ah, these sinners. Hate them. Hate their self-absorption. Hate their wickedness. Anybody can feel those kind of emotions. You don't need the Holy Spirit to feel that way. Lots of self-righteous religionists in our world today hate all kinds of people who do all kinds of things that they think have gone above beyond at least what they're willing to accept. They don't know what their own hearts are capable of. That's the problem with them. You know, they're like the Pharisee that went up to the temple and said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not like this Pharisee here. or this publican here. I'm better. I'm better. If you're a Christian, I hope you've been cured of the notion that you're made of better stuff. That you know you're a sinful person redeemed by the grace of God. And that you face a world in sin not with a natural attitude that just stirred up within the heart of people by nature. When Paul describes the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 he says they're evident. They're all around us. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing the works of the flesh. He describes some of the works of the flesh as these. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. It's all around us. It's evident. Everybody's doing it. Except Christians. Christians shouldn't be doing this work, these works of the flesh. Paul says, walk in the Spirit. That you 
fulfill not um, I'm sorry the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit these two are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you would we desire to live differently to be different not like the world we desire to be like Jesus to reflect our Lord Jesus accurately to an onlooking world and Paul uses some eight words to describe these things. I think, and I wonder why he does that. He, he just uses nine expressions for the whole of the fruit of the Spirit from A to Z. And there's 23, I think, of the works of the flesh, and there's eight of them that have to do with anger, anger issues. Maybe because we're so used to saying, I'm not angry, I'm something else. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I'm not angry, I'm just rocking sleep. I'm not angry. I'm something different. When it's really the whole thing is anger. I mean, really boil it down. It's just some version of anger. All these things are just the version of anger. Every one of us, you're either angry, you're either mad, glad, or sad. Those, those are the three things that really comprise the totality of human emotions. And everything else is just a variation of those things. Either mad, sad, or glad. hopefully as God's people you're glad hopefully the joy of the Lord is your strength, the fruit of the spirit which is love, joy, peace is what activates you, motivates you determines you we need to live like Peter says we're to live in the face of persecution he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, this is 1 Peter 3 and verse 14, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you, you do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Well, brethren, I want to leave you with some quick takeaways. I used to call these applications. I become a modern man when we talk about takeaways. They're really applications, though. Three applications. Three things by way of application. Jesus is our model in everything. He is the example of love. Love one another as I have loved you. He's the example of how we suffer, how we face our persecutors. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, take note how I've lived, how I've related. They will persecute you. And as Jesus met the persecution of a hostile world, so we are similarly to meet the persecution of a hostile world. Not with an army of warriors lopping off ears. It's the way of the Lamb. As Peter again says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus is the model. And the Spirit of God is our reminder of the way of Jesus. He takes the things of Christ and He reveals it to us. 
He testifies of Jesus. We're told beholding the glory of the Lord is in, in a mirror. We're transformed to the same image by one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And again, we behold Jesus as in a mirror. We behold Him as He's revealed to us in the Gospel. We see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. As we gaze upon His glory, as we look to Him, as we believe in Him, and as we trust Him, the Spirit of God's doing this amazing thing. He's molding us into the image of what we behold. He's making us more and more Christ-like as we behold Him. Now it doesn't work when we behold other models. Again, we're imitative creatures and we will follow things we tend to be exposed to. That's why I quit listening to talk radio. I quit listening to sports radio. Everything is a battle. Everything is a fight. People call up to air their grievances and to talk about that they don't like. They hate Aaron Boone because of how he's managing the Yankees. And they hate... I got enough of that already in my own heart and life. I don't need more of it. I don't need to inundate my life with it. But I do need to look at Jesus, beholding Him in the Gospels, beholding Him as the one who I look to be conformed to. The Spirit of God conforms us to the way of Christ. We learn to walk with humble dependence and submission to the working of the Spirit of God who keeps us in step with the light that we receive from God's Word and from God's works. And then finally, I'm just going to just remind you this. The world is the world. Don't expect it to be any different. Don't have expectations of some kind of utopia that's going to come if we elect a different kind of leader. Don't have expectations the world has no ability to fulfill. We've lived through recently the messianic statements about Barack Obama. We've listened to similar things about President Trump. We've lived, and we listened to other things about other people that come along. Don't put your confidence in princes, we're told. Don't make man your trust. Don't have expectations that the world is going to fulfill some kind of a paradise upon the earth. The garden will not be restored until Jesus returns. Christ is creating through his word and spirit a new people, a new humanity. That's you and me. And folks, whether the world knows it or not, we're the future. We don't have to be fearful of the world, to be threatened by the world, because really we are the future. It's Jeremiah's message to Israel because you know there were people that were taken into captivity in Babylon, and there were people that were left back into in Jerusalem, and there were some that went down into Egypt. And uh, the people in Babylon were thinking, the guys in Jerusalem, they have it all over us. And they were thinking maybe the people down in Egypt have it all over us. And what uh, Jeremiah is telling the people in, in exile, you're the future. You're the people. You're the people that God's going to bring, bring back and through whom the Messiah is going to come. And, and, and so don't fear the Babylonians. Live peaceably in Babylon until God brings you back because you are the future. We can live as exiles. We can live as strangers in this world, but we know we are the future. We are the new humanity. We are where the future lies. We have what is truly of excellence and of greatness. And we'll we'll, we'll 
prevail the kingdom of the living God. And so let's labor on and let's be faithful and let's pray your name would be hallowed, your kingdom would come, your will will be done on earth even as it's done in heaven that we might live in the midst of a world that does not know God as those who do and live in the midst of the world that's filled with enmity and strife and division as a people who abound in the love of the gospel. May God bless his word. Let's go to prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can meet together, that we can worship you, we can honor you, we can read your word and expound it. Pray, Lord, whatever elements of the truth of your word that's been expressed this morning would have its way with us. It would mold us. It would affect us very deeply to the core of our souls. We pray that you'd be with us. You strengthen us. By the power of your spirit, we would live lives that would honor you in the midst of a hostile, indifferent, hateful world. That we would abound in the fruits of righteousness that are through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of your name. Look upon us with your favor. Meet us in your grace as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.